0: Stay tuned next for Resistance Roundtable here on WPKN in Bridgeport. Welcome to Resistance Roundtable, broadcast on WPKAN the second Saturday of each month, where we engage in conversation about local and nationwide organizing for a more just and democratic America during this pivotal and dangerous moment in our nation's history. Hosting today's show is Ruth Ann Baumgartner, who's a longtime instructor in literature and writing at Central Connecticut State University, She's member of the Co- executive committee of the Connecticut Conference of the American Association of University Professors. Ruth also serves as a member of the board of directors and a theatrical director with the Westport Community Theater. Ruth Ann is here with us again in the studio this morning. Richard Hill is also here with us, and he's hosted WP Can Show's first Tuesday Rainy Day Radio, Organic Farm Stand, and rotating host of the program Mike Check. Uh, Richard is a musician, teacher, and mentor with Youth Radio in Connecticut. I'm Scott Harris, host of WPKN's weekly public affairs program, Counterpoint, and our syndicated show Between the Lines Radio News Magazine, uh, which both Ruth Ann and Richard are contributors. This morning, I'm very happy to let you know, we're joined by Paul Street. Paul is a revolutionary historian, journalist, speaker, and author of nine books, including They Rule the 1% Versus Democracy, This Happened Here, Americaners, Neoliberals, and the Trumping of America. You can read Paul's columns on the Paul Street Report substack page and on the counterpunch.org website. Paul, welcome to our program this morning. So happy you could join us. Hey, uh, thanks for having me. So I know we're going to get to Donald Trump, and his uh, disaster at CNN, the town hall meeting. And there's lots yeah. of other issues we'll visit. But I, I thought I'd just kind of begin our questions, and our panelists will have their own comments and questions about the state of democracy in America. But I just wanted to say something that uh, we've been talking quite a bit on, on this show and other programs, and the, the, the nation at large is talking about, that the Republicans have employed minority rule imposed through voter suppression and gerrymandering, aided by an extremist Supreme Court that's repealed key elements of the 1965 Voting Rights Act. And the Republican Party is working in states it controls to propose uh, debate and pass laws, uh, just just fully frontally attacking democracy. And I I have a whole list of things here that I'm sure we're going to get to. But Paul, because you've written extensively about the Republican Party's anti-democratic and fascist agenda, we'd we'd like you to first of all share with our audience the existential threat you believe is posed, not just by Donald Trump if he's reelected in the 2024 election, but the Republican Party as a whole where a majority of their politicians have embraced a fascist ideology as well as political violence as a method to gain and hold on to power.
1: Well, of course, the political violence is part of the um, fascist ideology. I'm glad you mentioned what's happening in the states. Um, There's a tendency to overfocus on uh, the more clownish and ridiculous congressional Republicans. Well, not to mention Trump, Um, though he's dangerous as hell. I wouldn't call him clownish, Uh, you know, like Boebert, like Paul Gosar. And, of course, above all, Marjorie Taylor Greene, they seem to be engaged right now in kind of a uh, a wrecking crew, kind of just destructive enterprise down there, uh, and it gets rather tragicomic at times, and in and, and cartoon-like. You can come to the state level, and it's as serious as a heart attack. And they're a very dedicated, fascistic, uh, Leninist. Uh, I'm joking in that regard, but very dedicated, very serious, and not unintelligent policymakers, hard at work at uh, at destroying democracy, and also in the federal. Court system, and I might mention that right now the Supreme Court uh, is deliberating on, and at some point this spring summer will rule on a, uh, a decision. I think it's called Moore v. Harper that uh, that advanced something called the independent state legislature theory, which carried to its which is a far right extremist theory. Which uh, the fact that they even heard the case is chilling, and carried to its ultimate extreme would allow. Right wing red state legislatures to literally nullify and cancel popular presidential votes in 2024. So, a lot of very serious stuff going on. Uh, when I say fascism, um, I'm, I'm, and I'm part of, I'm on the editorial board of an organization called Refuse Fascism. And we said this from the beginning uh, about Trump. There's a wonderful. A uh, new book, very interesting book, that's just come out by Jeff Charlotte called *The Undertow: Scenes from a Slow Civil War*. And he has a line in there somewhere where he says that um, one by one, the uh, the inhibitions against calling uh, Trumpism and, and and Republican era, Trump era republicanism, fascism, have fallen uh, away. Well, they never. Fell away for me. That was sort of my perspective from the beginning. And when I say it, I mean a number of things, and I'll try and be as brief as I can. But one of them is this notion of making a nation great again. A fancy term for that is palingenetic nationalism the restoration of an allegedly lost, stabbed in the back national greatness and this was in uh this was in uh, classic german fascism this was in classic italian fascism it's a core theme in trump in trumpism right make america great again victor orban in hungary it was stolen from him make Hungary great again combined with this is an othering a demonization of racial and ethnic and cultural minorities in this country non-whites well in europe as well non-whites uh, a, a racialized othering that is strongly identified with a hatred and suspicion of dark, uh, multicolored, multicultural cities as a kind of anti-urbanism. Every fascist movement, every fascist party has past and present. Classic 20th century, 21st century neoliberal era fascism is militantly sexist and pa- and patriarchal, uh, deeply committed to traditional. Uh, social hierarchy and, and gender hierarchy and patriarchy is really critical to that. And this court that we have a Christian fascist court right now, of course, is, 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 is undertaken an epic attack on women uh, and girls and also on transgendered pregnant people. There is a uh, Recurrent theme of replacement of the virtue, allegedly, supposedly virtuous and hardworking homeland people, heartland people, white people, the Volk, who are allegedly being replaced uh, with allegedly inferior, allegedly criminal, allegedly lazy uh, 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 people of color. Immigrants are being replaced by a nefarious, always sort of subtly understood, well, in the classic fascism, nothing subtle about it. Uh, identified as Jewish globalist uh, uh, conspiracy that's trying to replace the virtuous uh, Volk, the the, the flower of the nation. There's a uh, strong sense of survival of the fittest. There's a social Darwinism. There's a celebration of the rich and the powerful. There's an authoritarianism that seems to always involve a maximalist male leader, I guess in France, though, there's a potential a female fascist leader named Marine Le Pen, but almost always a maximalist uh, male leader, and there is an embrace of political Violence, uh, 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 lawlessness in the name of law and order is a classic fascist calling card across all of its eras. Lawlessness in the name of law and order, the embrace of political violence, the rule of men over the rule of law and over elections. There is um, fascism never breaks with capitalism. It doesn't go after private ownership of the means of, distrib- of production or distribution or investment or any of that, but it breaks with Previously normative bourgeois democracy, the right of people to choose their own uh, representatives through, you know, elections, which you know have all the, the the forms of corruption and money domination that we know about, but they're willing to cancel elections that don't go their way. They're willing to cancel center and liberal, not just left political parties, they're willing to destroy previously normative constitutional rule of law uh, and elections. And we saw that. And I think when Charlotte says one by one that the inhibitions against calling this fascism have gone away, he's probably referring largely to January 6th. I mean, this was an open, multi-pronged, uh, well, it was a culmination was the physical violence, the Beer Hall Pulse culmination of, a, of an ongoing coup attempt, which, if you ask me, was sort of the whole Trump administration. It, uh, um, I'm trying to remember the name of the European historian who was interviewed on Salon in 2017. Uh I, I don't know what's going on with my mind here. He's the he writes about the Ukraine and <laughs> someone someone here will remember the name. And he was interviewed on Salon on Cha- Chauncey Deveda in March of twenty seventeen and said this this is a coup, this is a coup regime, it won't accept being unelected. It's not trying to get a Trump is not trying to get a second term in the normal kind of way, you know, the advancing policies that people would support and then enough of them won't vote for him. Clearly, he's going to just advance this um, horrific agenda. Um, so, yeah, I don't I don't. <laughs> that's a long way of answering your question. But that's what I'm talking about when I talk about fascism. And, and my book, um, This Happened Here, there's kind of a play on the Sinclair Lewis novel, the fictional novel of a fascist takeover of the country that came out in the 30s, where, you know, the sarcastic title, It Can't Happen Here. I don't say it fully happened here because we didn't, obviously, we didn't have a full transition to to a consolidated fascist order. Now, that could be coming in 2025, 26, 27, the way things are shaping up. But But the title is This Happened Here. And what I meant by that is we really did have a fascist uh, in the White House for four years, um, and it's just astonishing that CNN would put this this monster on for an hour and a half, uh, and and that we're actually looking at the possibility of him having another term. Thank you for that, Paul. Uh,
0: Ruth Ann Baumgartner and Richard Hill are here with me in the studio, and uh, who has a, a question or comment?
2: Well, I I am thinking as you as you're talking of. The probability that even though Hitler didn't have the same kind of media access that our current mm. current gentleman has um, it, it really seems to me that the media are so complicit in this so deeply complicit in this what can what can we do about it because you turn on you say I want to watch the news this was a ritual with my father and it was a pretty good idea when when he was watching the news but when you watch the quote news now uh it's hard to to select the the station that's most likely to give you the news as opposed to a propaganda package
1: yeah it's it really is quite extraordinary and it it, it's it's odd how much we feel like we're it feels like we're the Trump era—it's <laughs> just uh, this ongoing uh, explosion of Trump's stories, and of course he thrives. He thrives off of that. He mm-hmm. loves to be the center of attention uh, all the time. And um, I, I was just amazed that CNN. Well, no, I guess I'm not amazed because they had a bit of a shake-up there lately, and they clearly are anticipating the possibility of a second Trump term. And I don't think they want to be on the outs. They don't want to have their FCC. Uh, 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 license canceled by a uh, by a trump presidency um that they would put this guy on for 90 minutes i think i said somewhere maybe it was on social media that um you know uh, the the encore to the to the to what i call the springtime for trumpler cnn town hall last week because you know the encore mm-hmm. would be that they're going to have a man covered in species in feces uh, stand up in front of a camera and vomit for for ninety straight minutes, and then we'll have a a a, a round table of talking heads talk about how much it stinks i mean it, they put they they put him on there uh to say uh things like January sixth was a beautiful day to say that he he will consider pardoning many of the fascist putschists who who rioted and tore up our our capital. On January 6th, he he was he got up there to say, and they let them put in uh, Trumpies in the audience to clap and applaud and snicker. They let him get up there to say that Ashley Babb- there was no reason for Ashley Babbitt, who was trying to cancel Joe Biden's election physically, that there was no reason she got shot. He referred to the cop who shot her on January 6th as a thug, which was racist dog whistling because the cop was black uh uh, he said i mean the timing of them doing this uh um just two days after a a jury in new york uh uh uh, held him liable for sexually assaulting and defaming e jane carroll i thought was extraordinary he actually said on cnn um that he didn't know who e jane carroll is which is just which is utterly preposterous and of course he 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 conveyed the um, Leviathan lie, the ultimate lie, the lie that Goebbels and Hitler would have would have been green with envy to have to advance that the 2020 election was stolen. You know, this mm-hmm. repeatedly misproven lie. It's just extraordinary. It's just extraordinary. I, one one thing that struck me in the CNN town hall was that he referred to, uh, he referred to the Dobbs decision, this horrific Christian fascist Supreme Court decision, which which undid uh uh, uh uh with the leadership of a judge alito who cited medieval law to justify it that undid women's half-century constitutional right to control their own bodies uh, um undid the right to an abortion he said i did that as if he did that personally himself meaning of course that he you know he 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 set up he and mitch mcconnell produced this court that mm. did that uh, uh um you know and um Oh, he called the woman the 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 c n n host that was there called her nasty, which is his code phrase for any any woman that has any power or strength whatsoever and so when they do this, and when c n n does something like that, they are normalizing neo fascism they uh, they they are broadcasting it they they are are um, they are complicit in it they are they are helping um it, advance it. And and CNN caught some well-deserved hell for doing this. And Anderson Cooper actually had the unmitted audacity to get up and say, stop complaining about the fact that we did this. This is half of the country. And it's about time you listen to these people, this unrecognized Trump base. Well, they're not half of the country. I have some political scientist friends who sort of quantify these types of things. And the Trumpist base is about a quarter of the country. The problem is they are grossly overrepresented by our minority rule structure, our gerrymandering, our dark money campaign finance laws, our electoral college. Uh, uh, Also rarely mentioned is our Preposterous Senate apportionment system where states get two two senators in the very powerful upper chamber of the U.S. Congress, regardless of the size of their population. So they're and, and also the way our primary system works, which we don't don't have enough time to get into right now. So they're, they're and they're very recognized. The Trump base is widely studied. We know we know a lot about it. But this is what Cooper said: as if this is some beleaguered group of people that really aren't recognized and we really don't know much about and oh by the way they're half of the country well this is just enabling them he just inflated their significance significantly when he said that and um you know what the media's motives are in doing this i'm not entirely sure what what i hear from people is uh, that study this stuff is he's good for ratings and his disappearance has been bad for ratings and cnn is trying to boost its profile it's Mm -hmm. been Fadingly, the Biden era is just too boring, I guess. Um, But I think there's, I think there's, I don't think we hold our ruling class uh, 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 sufficiently. What's the word I'm looking for? Culpable for the Trump phenomena. They know how to eliminate problematic people or people that they perceive as problematic, and they've shown that throughout history. They have a lot of power. Concentrated wealth has a lot of power. They can end people. Uh, they can cancel people that they find uh, uh, problematic for their system, and they can keep alive people uh, that they find at some level um, consistent with their system. There was very little elite corporate complaint about Trump really until January 6th, and then there was a brief moment of stepping away from him. That was just too much. January 6th was too much, but really for four years. Uh, the corporate sector was very, was pretty much quiet about it. There was grumbling. There were cultural difficulties and cultural problems. Corporate elite is culturally different than Trump in his base, but tax cuts and deregulation, uh, of, of super profits, uh, uh, they were all pretty happy with it. And I think that's part of also why CNN, um, you know, which is a capitalist corporate media outfit. After all, it's not the people's socialist media or something like that. You know, I think that's part of why this happens. Um, so, you know, we'll see. It's a place to say we'll see what happens.
0: Yeah. <laughs> this is Resistance <laughs> Roundtable, and our guest uh, this morning is Paul Street, historian, journalist, speaker, and author. And uh, in the studio with us is uh, Ann Baumgartner and Richard Hill. My name is Scott Harris. Richard, I think you have a question,
3: right? I, I actually do, yeah. Paul, thanks for joining us today. It's great to sure. hear this uh, blast of uh, what's how, how
1: in front of us. You know?
3: <laughs> yeah, really. But speaking of concentrated wealth, which you just mentioned, you raised in, in a couple of your articles the notion that capitalism breeds fascism. Wonder if you could oh. explore that a little bit. Like how how and why do capitalism and bourgeois democracy actually, as you put it, breed capitalism or you
1: know, cap- I think that's uh, a great fascism. question. And yeah. I think it's I think it's it's like this. Um, there is a delegitimization. There's there's a dance and there always has been between the suffrage and the vote and and, and um and and democracy and the and the right and the right of people to select their own leaders. On one hand, and capitalism on the other hand, and it's it's tolerated by capital, uh, which controls the underlying material base of society, and um, you know, a popular input within the political superstructure of society, is tolerated only in so far as it doesn't impinge upon those core underlying material pr- prerogatives. Who owns stuff? You know, who, who owns the land? Who owns the capital? Who owns the, just the the investment structure and all of that? So, you know, and 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 there's a, an, a withering away of the legitimacy of democracy all the time by big money it's always it's always working around the clock to to cancel labor law reform to cancel single, single payer health insurance to cancel real serious environmental regulation just fill in the blank of the the numerous public policy programs the majorities of the population support and that which never actually really get enacted into policy because of the wealth of concentration power and over time um, there's a there's there's a rendering inauthentic of the democratic promises and pretenses of liberal politicians uh, Jimmy Carter Bill Clinton Barack Obama, whatever. Of course, when you get up into the neoliberal era, it's almost like, did they even mean their promises that they meant in the first place? I, I knew Obama in Chicago, and I will promise your listeners, he did not. He was always very cynical from from the very beginning. I suspect the true, same is true of Bill Clinton. But in any event, they're rendered inauthentic. At the same time, the capitalism, through its chaos and its anarchy and its competition, and it's just, it's, it's, it, it's. It's only regulating principle being being competitive quest for profit, on the anarchy that imposes. It's constantly creating crises: crises of unemployment, crises of environmental destruction. Uh, you know, just you know, fill in the blank. And there's this sort of ongoing boom and bust cycle, and and it's creating crises that require big government solutions. For all the talk of the big business sector that's anti government, it's not. It's only against the parts of government that help. Poor people, that help working people, that help the working class, that help the common good. They're all for the big government that serves their interests. And we need government solutions. And when you take away, when when you delegitimize democracy and yet keep alive the need for government intervention, it just opens the door for authoritarians and maximalists who come in and look at the carnage uh, that has been created by capitalism and say, I alone can fix this. We alone can fix this. And you just you just have authoritarian solutions. Um, and of course, you've utterly delegitimized and attacked and marginalized those who would advance government solutions. For the common good, for the people, for the working class, for the for the broad populace. And so uh, we need government. We need it. And we particularly need it in this kind of society, which which is constantly torn by churned by the anarchy of capital. Um, And when you take away the left version of you, destroy the left hand of the state, you only leave the right hand of the state to do it, and I, I think that's a, I think that's sort of a fancy way, of, and probably too long a way of answering your question.
3: Yeah, thank you for that, mm-hmm.
0: Paul. I, I did have a, a question about who's supporting Trump and the Republican a, agenda. There's been lots of analysis about what drives millions of Americans, and it was 74 million in the 2020 presidential election that voted and supported Trump and his authoritarian and sure. unhinged hateful agenda. Some commentators speculate that it's white grievance, fear of demographic change, and the end of white privilege. Others say it's, it's pretty simple, that Trump normalizes and legitimizes endemic racism. Then there are those who believe that uh, growing economic inequality, the disappearance of good-paying industrial jobs, the, bi- uh, the unaffordability of college and health insurance, fuels a search for scapegoats meaning immigrants and communities of of color, people different from the majority, that Trump and the Republicans blame and demonize every day for America's failures. I you know it's probably some combination of that, but what, what's your thought about what's driving the support, 25% of the population? You know, population. That's,
1: a, that's a tough question, and, and, um, and there's, 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 there's a lot of conflicting scholarship on that. And uh, let me cite a friend of mine, an author at Lehigh University, a prolific political scientist named Anthony Dimaggio, who wrote a book that needs to be read a, uh, a lot more widely, and it's called Rising Fascism in America. It can happen here. And Tony is a real Dimaggio. Lehigh University is a, is 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 a real deep left thinker. Uh, who has a lot of quantitative skills, and he's crunched the numbers and done all these <laughs> stuff is over my head, but he's done all the regression analyses. Um, and, and the lion's share of, um, and, and according to DiMaggio and most of the scholars that he looks at, uh, the lion's share of what differentiates and teases out who becomes a Trump supporter is is not so much about economic anxiety, though it's impossible to leave out the overall context of the neoliberal era, which has been a negative for like 95 percent of the population, <laughs> you know, and been a profit boom for five percent or one percent of the population is always in the background. But the Trump base, it turns out, historically, you now, you know, and things are always changing, does not appear to be uh, as economically challenged and anxious uh, as is often assumed, and when you do the uh, – at the risk of you know, getting into quantitative social analysis, when you do the regressions, what emerges as the leading predictive factors are, um, are white nationalism and white fear. What I call Americaner fear of demographic change, of, of 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 an assault on what's called European values, and it's 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 really seems to be primarily about a Christian white nationalist uh, determination um, that uh, whites are losing their place and that men are losing their place, and sort of the combination of patriarchy and white supremacism driven by demographic change. And the the fact that the country is, in fact, becoming less white, that seems to be a big part of, um, of what's driving this. It doesn't seem that the Trump people went and got the working class base that used to be the Democrats, as much as people think the problem with the Democrats and their captivity to concentrated wealth is more that they just sort of demobilize people and 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 give them relatively little reason to vote at all. Uh or 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 get them to sort of vote for third or fourth parties or just to just not participate in the electoral process. It demobilizes them. And then the Republicans come in to sort of fill the gap. There are, of course, blue collar uh Trumpists. It doesn't seem so much about class though as as these factors of race and gender. And, uh, and and also Christianity, you know, fundamentalist Christianity, that's a huge predictive factor for Trump, for Trump support. Um, and region, uh, 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 the red-blue divide. Uh, it isn't really even red states versus blue states. It seems to be red, rural and ex-urban America versus metropolitan blue, uh, um, multicultural. You know, I should add white for red America. You know, uh, versus metropolitan. Uh, and by bi- coastal, you know, in, in the coasts, we've had a population movement towards the coasts, both of them, and the coasts tend to be relatively metropolitan. Um, but I, I do think the economic anxiety is has to be factored into it. There's absolutely, you know, no doubt about it. Uh, we have been in decline as an economic power now for for three, four decades, and um, and I I, 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 I don't. I don't I don't think that's irrelevant to to why this this has happened at this particular moment in time.
0: Thank you, Paul. I believe Ruth Ann has a comment or question for you.
2: I, I think it's an observation, but maybe it's a question. Um I I My long, uh, seemingly endless, but that was not true, uh, teaching career was in English. And more and more, it was in freshman composition, freshman composition. Um, I'm a product of public schools up to college, and then I was in private universities. uh, And all the people I knew in public school were really excited about what they were learning, even the kids who took shop, were excited about what they were learning. I don't see that much anymore. And especially I don't see it in the in the uh, area of language acquisition. My students in the more modern age view vocabulary as just something you study for the SATs. And after that, you don't need all these fancy, fancy words. <laughs> and <laughs> I think the problem with that is that that's the major uh, propaganda tool is you just make people not understand the meaning of words that make them incapable, actually, of critical listening. And as long as they can't really analyze what you're saying and what the implications are of what you're saying, they really can't criticize it. All they can do is repeat it. Uh, do you think that this is a wacko observation from a, from a lefty teacher? No,
1: no, no. I taught, uh, I used to teach incoming U.S. history survey classes in DeKalb, Illinois, at Northern Illinois University in the 90s, and then I went into social policy for a while, but then I started teaching again. Uh, I'm not now at DePaul in Chicago, geez, 2018 to 2020, and I was really shocked by the uh, drop-off in language skills.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, literally, just how to how to uh, how to compose a complete sentence from beginning to end. It was really, uh, really something else. I was also shocked by how much plagiarism I was getting with papers just pilfered off of the internet. You know, and mm-hmm. and this has to do with internet culture. I'm I'm just convinced of it. It has a, a lot to do with that. Um, I'm I'm in the, this attack on. Um, that's going on, particularly in the red states, and I'm in Iowa right now, which is amazingly enough once a state that was very—I mean, Iowa tests the basic skills, all these—the basic standardized testing—come out of here. Um, <laughs> it, and I hear from old-time Iowans. I'm a Chicagoan, but I've been in back and forth in Iowa a whole bunch, lately, and, and I hear from old-time Iowans about how proud they were of their vibrant public school system and mm-hmm. and the decline of that now, you, and and this attack on anything. Related to race, ethnicity, or gender, or sexual orientation in the schools, and that's going on in Iowa, not just Florida, and it's going on in other states. Florida is the vanguard of it. Um, is just, it just blows me away. Uh, there's this premise that that, well, I mean, what it's really about is a, what that attack is really about is a fascist agenda of taking away black and brown students' capacity to understand historical and social institutional basis of their, of, of their oppression in the system and to wipe out any sense of the resistance that, that they and their ancestors undertook to, to fight that repression. But there's this premise that, um, that, that white kids uh, will be made anxious and insecure and, and guilty, by an honest discussion of Native American genocide or black chattel slavery or ghettoization or just racial oppression. or generally, and I just, I don't know what they're talking about. I wanted to know everything about all of that. I wanted to know the whole story. I was, I just loved black literature when I was a high school student. I couldn't read enough Richard Wright or Ralph Ellison or James Baldwin. And many of us were like that. And now these things are banned books. And, and now they are considered uh, a, a dangerous material you know and um, you know Baldwin talked about uh, gay, gay experiences and the skylet letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne and and sexuality and all of that it's just it's just utterly bizarre when you when you close off all those interesting kinds of things uh, and fascinating and difficult and dark um, and and yet magical undercurrents of American history and society and literature. You know, you take the magic out of I think learning language uh, altogether. But um, oh my God, what's happened with language skills? It's quite horrifying. But then you get the, then every once in a while you get the paper from the kid who who gets it all, and then you you still have some hope. <laughs> and, and that happens too.
2: If only he would become a politician so he could right. spread, spread it. <laughs> right, right, right. Paul Street is our guest. Richard Hill,
3: question. Yes, um, thank you, Paul. In your different articles and your website, I, I noticed, you know, you talked about the, your podcast, and I guess it's a website, Refuse Fascism. And yeah. I checked in there, and it, it actually has tons of podcasts, which I'm going to oh, yeah. feast on soon. Anyway, I wanted to uh, ask, because, you know, the I guess the whole mission of that is to, you know, develop a united front against fascism, and, and I'm yes. wondering if small-D Democrats and anti-fascists, hopefully they're one and the same, should now focus full force on preventing a fascist Republican victory in 2024? Or is that just a sort of surrender to the illusions and, I guess, fantasies of bourgeois democracy?
1: Well, you know, I, I uh, you know, refused fascism when it started, and I wasn't in it from the beginning. I was out here in Iowa, and then I got this DePaul teaching gig, and I think it was about 2018, and I was, I was like, Trump was going just nuts with something about the border wall. He wasn't going to fund the government. He's going to shut the government down without a border wall. And I just, and I was in Chicago when I was teaching. I was like, "Who in the hell is saying anything about this?" And I started going online and looking for you know what you can do in cities now. Where are the protests? And I started, I just wanted to go to protests. I just, I just you know. And it was refused fascism and the vacuum, which some some of whom were were people from the RCP. Uh, which is Revolutionary Communist Party, but not entirely because the the idea was a united front of everybody and it includes small D Democrats and liberals and Democrats. And the idea behind Refuse at the time, and I think it, this idea is not going to go away, was that Trump needs to go away through mass action in the streets and in the public squares. We wanted to remove Trump the way. Ricky Rossello was removed in Puerto Rico through 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 shutting stuff down. You know, uh, it, with the idea being that that would set new terms for American politicians of all parties going forward. Uh, there was no attempt to reach out to the supposedly working class trump base because you didn't see many of those folks in chicago anyway but there's no the, 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 and and the the folks that one would try and reach out to and the premise it refused was that liberals and democrats and progressives and people who might not be as radical as some of the founders of refuse fashion were nonetheless natural allies they don't they they they, they, they they might not be socialists like myself, but but what we're trying to retain and build on elementary bourgeois democracy because there's no future. I mean, it's just it's just the boot on your neck. If, if you believe like I do in democratic socialism and, and even communist revolution at some point in the future, uh, you're not going to get anywhere with Proud Boys with their boot on your neck, you know, wearing patches that say right wing death squads and that they want to fly you up in a helicopter and throw you out. And they're natural allies. There, so that's what we're looking for. Now, we failed, and uh, that's not particularly surprising because it, it was a really big ambition to remove Trump the way I still think he should have been removed. Uh, and 2020 came up, and the calculation was that Trump was simply too dangerous, simply too dangerous, he's a fascist, to, to, to not put aside the usual leftist, uh what's the word i'm looking for disdain for the ballot box i didn't i i i i i voted i mean i'm, I'm no fan of joe biden i, I find him very conservative and I've, I've found him incredibly disappointing on just about everything including most recently the abortion issue which i think he's just terrible on. we don't have time to go into that but we you know we voted for biden um just because of the horror uh the, the horror that uh that um that 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 so, yeah, you know, um, a united front, but, you know, it's it's not going to happen if we don't get more serious about um, what's staring us right in the face. There is a remarkable reluctance among liberals, and this worked its way into the mainstream uh, liberal media politics culture, like what you see at The Times or The Washington Post or at, uh, MSNBC, there's there's a there's a periodically somewhat suspended reluctance to actually say what this is to agree with Jeff Charlotte that the inhibitions have to go away and we need to call this fascism and I think some of that inhibition uh, and I find this in academic culture where it's dangerous it, it's weird my political scientist friends tell me this they get in trouble or that they their careers are in danger this is true in history too. Uh, their careers are, prob- are made problematic by being, you know, unless you're like Henry Giroux and, you know, and you're so established that you can say what you want. It doesn't matter. Um, you know, uh, to actually call this out is what it is. And I think that has to go away. And I think that some of the reluctance to call it what it is, is that <laughs> it, if you call it fascism, you might have to get up off your butt and do something about it beyond just voting. It's going to take more than voting, I never myself have taken an ultra leftist position that don't vote. Of course, FDR is better to have than 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 um, than Herbert Hoover in 1932. Of course, you didn't want George uh, the George W. Bush to have a second term. I held my nose for John Theory. I mean, of course, you got to vote Trump out, but it takes two minutes. It's it's a low. It's a it's a pretty low bar. Uh, it takes two minutes to vote. What do you want to? This is the Howard Zinn line. What do you want to do? After those two minutes, what are your politics? And if you look historically, and that's my training as a historian, we haven't got anything serious in the way of the left hand of the state, of the things we need, of programs and policies that back the common good, without also taking to the streets, the Greensboro sit-downs, the Freedom Riders. Uh, We learned recently in a PBS documentary, and this is, boy, this is public media actually doing something good, that Nixon and Kissinger um, would have used nuclear weapons in Vietnam, but for the anti-war mobilization of 1969. And I could go on and on. The way the way the constitutional right to an abortion was won in the first place was through a, a mass feminist social activism in the 60s and 70s. The, the vote itself, the right to vote, was won through uh, social movement activism beneath and beyond just the quadrennial electoral extravaganzas that are sold to us as the only politics that matter. Well, they're not the only politics that matter. And this has been one of my real big disappointments on the abortion issue with the liberal establishment groups, Planned Parenthood and NALO and others. They didn't seem to want to get serious about what was staring them right in the face and join Rise Up for Abortion Rights and really having a mass social movement modeled on what the women of Latin America did in Argentina and Mexico and Colombia, uh, which was a green wave—you know, everything was a blue wave, blue wave, blue wave—and oh, if they take away women's constitutional right to abortion, well, will they will pay at the ballot box, and we'll show them in the midterm. Well, they didn't even keep the house. They didn't, there, there were some victories around abortion, but I, I could go on and on and on about it. So it's not either or; it's 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 both and. You know, in my opinion, so sure. I mean, I'm gonna if if it's Trump or Desantis who might be more dangerous in some ways on the Republican ticket in 24, I, I won't have any choice. Uh, especially since I'm registered in a, um, I'm registered in a. Well, it's not a purple state anymore. It's Iowa, so it might not matter. It used to be a purple state. Um, I'm not in. I'm not registered in Illinois anymore, where the Democrats always win. Uh, I'll feel compelled to cast a ballot. Um, for whoever disappointing, dismal dollar drenched dem they run, with no illusions about that Democrat whatsoever.
0: Well, Paul, this this has been a, a enlightening and important uh, discussion this morning. <clears throat> Thank you so much for joining us. I, I do have one final question, if our panel sure. thinks we have time here. Um, is this, in your view, uh, this this current Trump brand of GOP fascism? Alas, gasp of a dying political party, largely embraced by an aging white population that's hopelessly out of step with the majority of the nation. And and more importantly, the younger generation, it's not, (laughs) this Republican Party is certainly not uh, embraced by the younger generation. Is inevitable demographic change the thing that's going to extinguish this Threat to democracy in the Republican Party? You think?
1: Well, you know, I hope they're done. And you know, it's funny you mentioned the youth thing, the the youth, the youth numbers. I mean, like you know, like majorities of uh, people, what is it, eighteen to thirty, think we, <laughs> we thought socialism sounds like a good idea. They support trans rights. They support, you know, like three fourths support women's right to an abortion, if not more. You could just go on. They're great. When I'm on a train or a bus between Iowa and Chicago, I talk to Iowa kids who are like. I'm never going back to Iowa. I've got to get out of Iowa. It's just you know it's like these old white people. Uh, yeah, I mean you know that's 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 a that's a nice concept. Uh, I don't know that we have the time to wait for that. And I'm thinking particularly ecologically. I, I find environmental situation is moving too rapidly to feel very good about. Well, we'll have sustainable policies in you know in a generation. Out, I mean, I I don't want to tolerate a woman being forced to go septic and not even being able to have uh, miscarriages in Oklahoma and Arkansas and and uh, and other other red states. God knows, could be the whole country before before too long, particularly after twenty twenty five. I don't really want to wait that long, and I'm concerned that you might have what I refer to as an Americana situation, and that's taken from the South African term Afrikaners, and that is yeah a minority a minority that deepens and further entrenches a minority rule system you know through voter suppression through doubling down on gerrymandering by uh, you know preventing senate reform and no one talks about senate reform and the senate system is absurd it's 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 uh, uh, wyoming has the same number of senators as california which is utterly preposterous uh, supreme court judicial review power uh, um, there's a lot of questions about the very legitimacy of the Supreme Court right now. Can we expand its size? Can we? You know, it, it, we haven't embedded. This is this this is another thing that's in front of us that we don't like to look at, which is the institutional structure of American politics. Uh, and God knows what the Supreme Court is going to rule on this uh, Moore v. Harper case right now which basically will let red state legislatures just get away with electoral murder carried to its extremes. So I wouldn't um, be very excited about sort of distancing myself from the current situation and saying, oh, we'll be okay because 30 years out, demographic change will have Mm. fixed us. I don't know we'll have much left to fix in 30 years. And I'm not sure that they can't Consolidate um, uh, uh, a really authoritarian Christian white nationalist system uh, over over the next ten years or so, maybe sooner. So, uh, I, the, the problem with that narrative, I guess, that I have is that it might reinforce a uh, a, a, a passivity. Uh, and you know, it's it's that's that's my main issue with most of the good people that I know. You know, Dr. King used to talk about this. That uh, it's we know who the we know who the bad folks are. We know who Bull Connor is. We know that you know. And the King used to talk about fascism. We know who the fascists are, uh, but they're full of energy and they're moving at lightning speed and they're ripping up old rules and making new ones. It's the passivity of the broader mass of people. Most of them are very good but who have been led to turn away from politics and struggle and also have given up. Their pessimism and fatalism are really big problems. So um, the problem I have long story short with that narrative is that it could feed that passivity and that relaxation and um, that in a way, complicity, you know, I can put it that way.
0: Well, Paul, thank you again for uh, joining us this morning. Uh, Again, many important points and ideas uh, were explored here about the current threat to democracy in the U.S. So appreciate it. And uh, Paul
1: Street, again. Thank you so much, Scott, and everyone else, too. Come back.
0: <laughs> All right. Oh, Paul's super. Still, you bye. Back. Thanks, Paul. Huh? Bye-bye.
1: Okay. Bye. okay. Bye-bye.
0: Paul Street is a historian, journalist, and author of nine books, including uh, They Rule, The 1% Versus Democracy, and uh, The Paul Street Report, can be found on Substack and on uh, articles his articles can be found at the org website so panel what do you think
2: <laughs> well i i am i am going to continue meditating on our conversation about language specifically because I think propaganda is made from debased language and I think the country has been on a crusade to debase language or debase language knowledge for a long time. So uh, maybe I'll get my typewriter out and write something.
3: (laughs) In reading one of Paul's articles, he reviews that book by Jeff Charlotte and wanted to uh, just read a quote from that book, which I thought was incredible. And it's the notion that the death cult or the cult of death, which is how he characterizes the, the militia movements and the fascist street gangs, merging that with the cult of innocence. And he says the gun is made clean by the cult of innocence, born again, not as a tool of aggression, but of defense, as the protection of purity inscribed by growing numbers of manufacturers with the stars and stripes and biblical verse advertised as a form of evangelism and a means of spreading God and goodness in the world. Like a baby, the fetus and the gun, small wonder nobody's put them together on a flag. I thought that was just very, very powerful.
0: It's har- horrifying to think of the confluence of all these events, you know, we've been witnessing the CNN town hall, the mass shootings. It just seems like our world here in in this country is is going to hell pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And I think Paul Street notes that for evil to prevail, all you need is good people to do nothing. But we see people rising up. We see students walking out of schools. We see uh, the Tennessee legislators getting up and shouting and, you know, accepting the
3: challenge of what we're up against. So there is hope. There's hope out there. I wonder what the, the pushback should be. You know, I think we talked about creating a united front against fascism, bringing together people from all perspectives, all ideologies who oppose fascism. You know, could be even conservative republic, old school conservative republicans like the Lincoln Project people together with Radicals like mm-hmm. the Refuse Fascism folks coming together to actually create this united front. What do we do with it? What kind of tactics should we employ to once this kind of coalition is formed? It's mm-hmm. uh, it's a, it's a question I think we have to answer.
0: Well, you know, I'd, I'd always thought that a, a network, statewide, local, nationwide network of people who are pro democracy and anti fascist. It, you could put together a system of a rapid response network of people and the school board. All these crazy people with guns are coming to the school board to try and shove down the community's throat all these anti-trans, anti-gay and um, anti-history agenda items. You'd have an, a rapid response network to get people out to that meeting and and shout those those Nazis down. I mean, that's in the broad sense, I guess, what I'm thinking such a, a network could be used for and get them out to vote, you know, do all the things that we need to do, not just vote, but all the other civic involvement and activism you need to stir up to oppose these people who are a minority. They, yeah. they prevail yeah. only because the majority doesn't come out to oppose them. Yeah, it's true.
2: I'd even like on a very minor level to to pressure any kind of uh, news media to stop saying 60% of republicans and only 55% of democrats so you see it's the trend and take to to heart what mr street said there aren't as many republicans as there are non-republicans and every time you say this percentage of republicans and you're equating it with percentages of uh, of other entities you're overweighting the importance of what the Republicans have to say, or you're overweighting the popularity of what Republicans have to say, because you're really not comparing the same quantities. You're only comparing the same labels.
0: Yeah, I just should mention I had a a discussion with the uh, director of MoveOn.org Monday, and there's a big demonstration at uh, Subway Sandwich Shop World Headquarters in Milford, Connecticut, this Monday, May 15th where there's a protest against uh, Subway's policy of advertising on Fox News.
3: Very good, yeah. What is the time of that again? Monday, this Monday. This Monday at what time? Not sure of the time.
0: MoveOn.org, people can find out where things go. But we only got 40 seconds left before we have to (laughs) say goodbye. This has been Resistance Roundtable with Richard Hill and Ruth Ann Baumgartner. I'm Scott Harris. Thanks for listening, and uh, we'll be back the second uh, Saturday of next month, which is June 10th. Take care. This is W.P. Cannon Bridgeport.